Hello, and welcome to Co-OpCast, your one-stop for cooperative game news and reviews. On this week's design discussion, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will discuss a board game and have a related design discussion. Hey everybody, it's Peter, and before we get started here, I just want to say thanks for being patient with us this week. Sorry we're a little bit late. We did have Unpub, and Unpub was very successful for us. We also got to see some listeners there and talk to them, and which is always great and something we always love to do. But I do have a special announcement to make before we go any further, which is we are going to change the name of the podcast to One Stop Co-op Shop to match the YouTube channel. And the reason we're doing this is just so there is one consistent brand. You can tell people you love One Stop Co-op Shop, and you can now mean both the podcast and the YouTube channel. So we decided to do that just to have some consistency. So going forward, and you've probably already seen the logo change in your podcast app, we are going to have One Stop Co-op Shop. Now we're going to leave the name in the feed for a little bit, just so you can find us for a couple weeks under Co-op Cast, but we are going to very soon change that as well, and everything will be One Stop Co-op Shop. So if you're afraid you won't be able to find us in the future, please subscribe if you haven't done that already, and they will automatically switch the name over for you. All right, well, thanks for listening as always, and we really hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Co-op Cast. Today, we're going to be talking about Legends of Andor from Cosmos Games, a game that came out quite a while ago, but has had some expansions and standalones along the way. And we've also recently had an app, so that's bringing it back into consciousness again. That's right, and Peter and I both have a chance to play the app, and we both played the core game, which is what our review will focus on, but I'll also mention some stuff about some of the expansions that have come out for the game. And in our design discussion, we're going to an old classic debate, theme versus mechanics. Although we're not going to talk about which is more important, theme or mechanics, we're going to talk about how to make a game more thematic and less thematic using the mechanics of the game. So let's jump right in. Peter, why don't you tell us a bit about the theme of Legends of Andor? So Andor is set in a fantasy universe where you are defending the town of Andor. And it isn't zoomed in on the town. This is kind of a world map view of the area. And so you're defending from invading beasts from all around. And these do vary from their own fantasy beasts, such as the gore, to your traditional things like dragons. But you are playing pretty generic races. You have a dwarf, an archer, a wizard, and a warrior. So it's a little bit of generic fantasy mixed with a little bit of their own kind of universe. So with that being said, Mike, why don't you talk a little bit about gameplay? So the key kind of gameplay mechanic here is that you have a time track of hours, and each hero has the capacity to do seven hours in a day of actions. And generally speaking, anything you want to do takes one hour So, like, moving one space takes an hour, fighting an enemy for one round takes an hour, and you can go beyond these seven hours up to ten hours, but you lose willpower, which is sort of your life total, but also influences how many dice you roll in combat. And it is a scenario-driven game with cards that are revealed, which will spawn more enemies, reveal objectives you have to complete, surprise you with events, all that kind of stuff. So you'll generally be trying to complete objectives, and you have to play with at least two heroes, up to four heroes. And with the extra heroes expansion, you can actually play with up to five or six. So you'll generally have to kind of spread around on the map, 
track down things. Most scenarios will be a combination of finding some items, defeating some enemies who are trying to attack the castle. And that's the main loss condition. If the enemies get to the castle in too many numbers, and it kind of depends on the number of players, you lose the game. And additionally, you have this narrator pawn that moves and triggers some of the key events in the game and the key spawns in the game. It moves up one space per turn, but additionally moves up whenever a monster is defeated. But yeah, so you're just trying to balance your willpower, your time, the items you gain, because you can gain like equipment, armor, shields, bows, trying to spend your money to level up your heroes, and usually most of the scenarios end with defeating some kind of big bad. The only other thing I'll note is that combat is all dice-driven. You'll roll dice for the enemies, you'll roll dice for however many heroes are in there, some heroes will have multiple dice, you'll have like some powers and items that can boost you up. And the difference between your rolls is how much damage is done. And you're basically trying to defeat their willpower before they can defeat all of your willpower. All right, Mike. Well, thanks for the rules overview. And if it's your first time joining us, we talk about the top five things we think you need to know about the game. Starting with number five, which is the least important, and going all the way to number one, which we feel is the most important thing you need to know about Andor. I'll start it off. My number five is the tutorial system. When this game first came out, this is what they really preached about the game. It's, you know, no rules, just, you know, a four-page rule setup, and then you learn the game as you play. So the first mission, there's a lot of things on the board. It's like, go to a fog token and flip over this card when you do, and, like, it'll teach you the rules as you're going along. And for me, this is both a pro and a con. It's certainly kind of nice to have a tutorial type system where you don't have to read a bunch of rules before you get into the game. The problem is a lot of the rules for the game then become on cards and they don't really tell you to pull those out. I even think it would have helped if they had like a little picture of a rule book on it, which meant hold this card to the side. You're going to need it for all the rest of the missions as well. It doesn't do a great job of telling you which ones should go back into oblivion where you never see them again and which ones need to be held onto for future missions. I mean, it's a little obvious to tell with some of them, but other ones it's like, well, is this a special rule for this mission or do I need it for everything? And even with those cards in the tutorial, which I think does a decent job of teaching you the game, I wish there was one rule book that I could just refer back to. And like, if I had any rules questions, this is where like the fantasy flight two rule book system would work really well. Have like a learn to play, like get in, this is how you play, but then give me a rule book with all the rules in it as well. So while it is neat for learning the game, you almost do have to play that tutorial mission in order to learn it. And then referencing rules is really hard because of that. And I will note they do have a sort of unified rules reference as a separate booklet, but it does not perform the task of a rules reference because it does not have everything in there. And I'm going to touch on some of the negatives uh, later in the review of what you just said, Peter, but I will agree with the positive here because I don't have it later. The tutorial works pretty well. I played the base Legends of Andor with my son, who was five at the time. We haven't played it recently. And he was definitely able to learn the basic rules easily with that tutorial. So there is some positive there. Yeah, absolutely. My number five is a pro, and that's managing your character and the items you get on your character and kind of like your character board overall. So I didn't put components on my list of five, but I do want to mention that I love the components for this game. This was kind of my honorable mention. It's really chunky cardboard. It's all standees, but they're pretty like gorgeous standees the dragon is this huge like multi-part standee that just looks fabulous yeah i really like the dragon 
people who don't know me should know I love dragons, and that is certainly one of the things that attracted me to this game. That cardboard sandy dragon is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. They have like a tower in this one. And I'll note that uh, in the later expansions that I'll talk about further down, they have even crazier standees and like gigantic, ridiculous monsters and like boats and wagons and all this cool stuff. So again, it's a quick plug for the uh, components, but specifically, I love the character boards. Uh, Managing your willpower is really interesting. The fact that you can go over your number of actions per turn by spending extra willpower, that's really cool. I like how the board has a really simple way of showing how many combat dice you roll based on your willpower. So you can see at a moment's glance, it's very user-intuitive. And also, just a kind of, you know, fun uh, doll kind of system note. You put a lot of the items right on your character's portrait. Like, they have a space for you to hold a hawk or a shield. They have a space for you to put a bow. They have a space for you to put a helmet on top of your head. And it's just really cool. Like, the items are already powerful and have a really nice feel to them and really change up what you can do in the game quite a lot. But adding on the fact that you're actually, like, illustrating your character and changing how they look as you play the game, I've always found very fun. Yeah, I don't have that on there. I certainly have a lot of the elements of that in other elements that I talked about, but I I do agree that the components are great in this game, and it is pretty cool seeing your character, like, dress themselves up as as you're going throughout. All right, my number four is the Day Tracker. So, as Mike said, you have seven actions throughout the day, and you can take even more actions if you want by paying stamina. And the way it works is... Each character can kind of take as many moves as they want, even as many combat actions in a row as they want against the same monster. But then when you're done doing that, someone else gets to go. And so there's this time tracker across the top. And so nobody really sits around too long. Combat could take a little bit longer than most other actions. But you typically kind of move around, maybe gain some willpower at a well somewhere. There are these well spaces on the board that'll increase your willpower. Maybe you go to one of the other towns that are located on the map and you buy stuff. But basically you have seven actions, but it's not like you're going one action at a time. You might take four moves to get to this town and then you can do the town action for free at the end of that. So I really like how it works. I like the push yourself mechanic. I don't want to say push your luck because it's definitely not push your luck, but spending that willpower to get extra actions is kind of a neat and sometimes difficult decision because willpower is not only your life in the game, but it also determines how many dice you roll in combat, and we'll get to that part of it later. But sometimes losing that two willpower will knock you down one dice every time you do combat. So that's an interesting decision as well. So my number four is the day tracker and just that push your luck mechanic there. Yeah, it's funny. Your number five and your number four are both in a way on my list much further down. (laughs) So I'll touch on that later. But my number four is a mix, and that's the combat in the game. And actually, this is a mix kind of trending toward a con, and we're going to get to a lot of negatives for me in the middle here. On the positive side, I like how quick the combat is. It is generally resolved very quickly. And although you do have to do a little bit of addition, and sometimes the numbers get fairly high in like party combat, you might get up to the 20s or the 30s even. They do have like little trackers on the board that you can use to usually make that pretty simple. I also like that there's some item use decisions, like there's some kind of push your luck decisions. Because if you don't kill a monster within the space of one combat, now one combat could be multiple actions of combat. But if you like interrupt that with a move action or if you you know rest at the end of the day, then the monster fully heals back up. So I like the choice of like having to push your luck and maybe get hurt too much. 
I also like the items. There's like a witch's potion you can drink to double your combat and figuring out when the best time to use that. That's all kind of interesting. What I don't like, and again, this pushes it more towards a con than just a pure mix, is that the game does need some luck. There's a pretty puzzly game with very little luck elements besides like a random event draw, like the spawning of enemies is almost always the same and that kind of stuff. So the combat is where most of the luck comes in, but they made the luck element too strong, too swingy for me, especially in a game that is kind of more Euro-y and more puzzly in nature. The big reason being that, as I said, the difference in the results of the enemy and the heroes is the amount of damage done. So if you roll a 1 and they roll a 6, your hero could be pretty much wiped out in one round of combat. And it's not like you're dead and you lose the scenario immediately, but you kind of might as well have, because it can take so long to build your willpower back up to being a like kind of more useful person in the game. And then on the other hand, you might sometimes just destroy guys in one single action. And it really can totally mess with your plans, how these combats go, and just completely control whether you win or lose a scenario. So for a game that is very Euro-y, I find the combat too swingy. So again, it kind of edges towards con for me. Yeah, I'm going to talk about combat in a minute. Before I get there, though, I'm going to talk about the willpower system. Willpower is basically your life in the game. The more willpower you have, the more dice you roll. And I like this in games. I like in games where when you get hurt, you lose a little bit of power. You know, in games like D&D, you have however much life and... A lot of times, nothing happens to you until you're down to zero life. And I do like how this system tracks, and it's not just for you, it's for the enemies as well. It tracks how much willpower you have at the time, or life, whatever you want to call it. And then the less willpower you have, the less number of dice you get to roll in combat. And each character rolls dice differently. So like for range combat, for example, they roll their dice one at a time, and you're deciding when to stop or not. So even if you have four dice, you roll one dice... And then you'll keep going, roll one dice again until you decide to stop. So that's a little bit of a push your luck mechanic. The wizard gets to flip somebody's dice in combat, but he only rolls one dice no matter how much willpower he has. So they play with the system a little and the characters are very unique in how they do it. But I do like how they do the willpower system. And to get willpower back, they have these wells around the board where you go and you can gain three willpower at a time. And again, that's another character's power. He'll gain five at a time. So that's the warrior. So he's stronger in that way. And then the other way to get willpower back is every time you win a combat, you can choose to either get gold, which will increase your combat power or let you buy items, or you can get some willpower back at the end of combat. So I think... It's interesting in all of those ways where you, it's it's like another resource that you're messing with in the game, which I guess kind of leads toward that Euro side of things as we've been kind of talking about throughout. So my number three is the willpower system. Yeah, and it's interesting, Peter. You're definitely kind of zooming in on very specific systems more, whereas mine are definitely kind of broader picture, which is, I, th- I think, a nice contrast for this review. So my number three is the scenario variety. And this is a straight-up con, and I got a couple of these in here. So there are five scenarios in the game, and again, this is just the core original Legends of Andor game we're talking about, because it has a ton of expansions that we'll uh, mention later. Just to kind of run through them quickly, Mission 1 is pretty much a tutorial, a very little replay, not that interesting. Mission 2 is somewhat interesting, has a little bit of variety in like where these items spawn, but the strategy to win it is going to be basically identical every time. Mission 3 is where they do have some replayability, like the sort of boss you'll fight at the end is different and where enemies come in is kind of different. 
it doesn't feel super different, but at least you can play that one like three or four times and still feel like you're seeing new stuff. Mission four is a disaster. So the board has like the main side, which has the castle and all the surrounding lands. Then on the back side, it has this mine. And mission four is the only one that uses that map. So they went to all this trouble to draw this beautiful map just for one mission. Although I think there's another one uh, that's available for download online. And the mission is a total mess. I usually, uh, I played it several times. I usually lose it in about five minutes, which is like a third of the time that it takes to set up the mission. It's really poorly balanced. I'm not sure if it's a translation issue or something else, but it's a total mess. Don't even play it. And then Mission 5 is pretty good. That's where you fight the dragon. You got like a little bit of variety there, but not much. So basically you have like five scenarios, but two of them are fairly boring tutorials that aren't really replayable. Two of them have some replay, and one of them is a complete waste of time that was not designed well. So you kind of end up having, like, maybe two missions, three missions that you can really play in a fun, meaningful way. And that is just not enough for the game. So I think the scenario variety and design is a pretty big miss here. Yeah, I agree. And we'll talk about expansions and the app later. But I think that's one thing the app does really well. The missions have been totally unique and very fun so far. But we will get into that at the end. I agree with you, though. The base game, there. I mean, that first mission, there's no reason to replay it again. I mean, it is literally just a tutorial. All right, so getting on to my number two, and you're right. This is a game, you know, some games I talk a lot about feelings, and in some games I talk more about systems, and in this one, it's systems for me, because they do a lot of unique systems. And my number two is the combat system. This for you was mostly a con, and I agree with a lot of what you're saying. It is very swingy for sure. There are ways to mitigate that, typically by adding more heroes, which, I mean, it kind of reminds me of Robinson Crusoe a little bit, where the more things you add, in this case it's heroes, or in that one it's discs, you add, you can almost ensure the victory. Here it's kind of the same way. If you add enough heroes for most combats, you can get through them pretty easily without having to worry about it. But now you're spending actions to move your heroes down there and roll dice, where a lot of times you just want to move one hero and hope you get lucky. Or build one character up enough where it's not getting lucky anymore. It's now you know you're pretty assured at combat. Now, the thing about combat, as Mike said earlier, every time you win a combat, you're losing time, and the time track is one of the loss conditions of the game. So it isn't like you're doing combat all the time. It is puzzly, like how do I avoid combat a lot of times? Although certainly you're going to need to protect the town, so you are going to need to do some combat. And the way it happens is every character has a strength value, and you can use gold coins to increase your strength value. So you're rolling a certain amount of dice and adding to that strength value. But the enemies, when they roll doubles, so if they roll double twos, they get four points added, which isn't a big deal unless you roll double sixes, and now you're adding 12 points. And that combat that went from you, you know, obviously having a big strength advantage to them now adding 12 to their combat can be pretty swingy in that way. Now, we have an item as well we can purchase, which will let us add all our matches together as well. And some of our characters will roll like five dice. So if you get three of a kind, you add all three of those together. So because of that, it gets pretty swingy as far as how high the numbers can get. And as Mike said, the difference between them is the loss of willpower. So it can go pretty far one way or another. But I find once you buy a couple of items and build your strength up a little bit, usually you can control those, especially if you're adding multiple characters. 
So as you can tell, there's a lot going on in the combat for something that's so simple. And that's what I like about it is there is a lot going on. I do wish that they had limited the strength loss you could have so you're not losing all your health in one round. Also, sometimes if you don't kill them in one round, as Mike said, you can keep going two, three, four rounds. And because of that, not only could you possibly lose by losing your willpower, but you're also losing time as those hours go by and every extra action you have to use uses more hours. And those are limited as well in such a puzzly game. So it can swing both in the amount of willpower you lose and in the amount of time you lose. So in more than one way, Mike's right. It can definitely be swingy. Yeah, so since uh, you came back to one of my points, I'm going to come back to yours. You're number five about the rules. And like I said, there is a pro to the tutorial system, but I'm focusing on con, and this is my biggest con for the game. It's my number two, and it is major, major con. Two kind of things here with the rules. First is the organization. The mixed format, as Peter says, does not work. You have rules that are in the learn-to-play book, you have rules that are on cards, and you have rules that are in like this sort of reference book. But rules that are on the cards aren't in the reference books. You can't just look at the reference book. And, you know, God help you if you play through the first, like, two scenarios or three scenarios and then just want to, you know, you put the game down for a few weeks and then you want to come back and play that last scenario you didn't get to. You got to look back through cards from other scenarios to figure out how to set up the game and what the heck the witch does and all this stuff. And it's just, it's a very frustrating way. And I know some people don't like the Fantasy Flight split rulebook method, and this is kind of similar to that. But man, it is so much worse here, whereas Fantasy Flight, I find personally those rules references almost always have everything I need to know, and that is not at all the case here for Legends of Andor. But we're not done. The bigger thing that I think uh, is most frustrating for me is that whoever's doing the translation and localization, because these games are from Germany originally, just every time, and this unfortunately is an issue that is true in pretty much every expansion I bought as well, Every time they totally mess up some major rule by translating it wrong, and if you're not willing to like dig on Board Game Geek and find some people who are translating the rules from the original German, you are playing the game wrong, and sometimes it makes things like almost impossible. Like I said, I wouldn't be surprised if Mission 4, the totally broken mission, maybe there's some rule that isn't written correctly in English and it would actually make it more winnable. But how the heck am I supposed to know? <laughs> So, especially for casual players who might buy this, it's incredibly frustrating because they just need to get this right. And they are not, they are clearly not having people who are native English speakers play the game with people who know the game, understand it, and then check the rules. Like, that is just not happening. And it's so consistent. Like I said, like, even right now, I've been playing Last Hope, the uh, the most recent, like, full kind of release for this game. And, oh my gosh, I mean, like, in the second scenario, there is a rule, a major rule, that is completely wrong in English and makes the scenarios almost unwinnable for the entire game. And it's like, if you don't look that up, what is the experience like for you playing that game? It's incredibly frustrating. I wish they could get their act together, but they have shown four years with this line that they can't. So I have no confidence they're going to fix it. It's uh, just, it's, it's really annoying. What I will say, that expansion was sent to you as a review copy, correct? Yeah, yeah, and I am... So, a lot of the things I'm saying in this review are similar, but actually fairly different, because I am going to do a video review on Legends of Andor The Last Hope, and in many ways they fix a lot of the things I'm saying right now, but I will say that, at least for that one rule, big misstep there. Now, luckily I found the correct rule online, I'm good to go, but uh, yeah, it's, it's still a pressing problem. 
So lest anyone say when we get sent review copies, we are nicer to the game. I think you can tell by Mike's scathing comments so far that we are not nicer to the game when we get review copies. In our design discussion, I'm going to you know tear apart something about another game I was sent recently. So yes, <laughs> it is a tough thing for a reviewer, but I try my best to stay unbiased and just treat the game as it is. All right, my number one, I feel like we're going to match up a little bit on this, but I call it the time track. Again, I stuck with the mechanisms. The time track is interesting and it's frustrating all at the same time. As Mike said, every time you kill any enemy in the game, the time track moves up one. It also moves up one between these days. Now, Peter, real quick, just to interrupt, sorry. The time track is the hours you spend on a turn-by-turn basis. The narrator track, I believe it's called, at least the narrator pawn is what it moves, is like what, uh, what you're moving up as you kill monsters and stuff. All right, well, thanks for that correction. Yes, so the narrator track. It's just frustrating because you could spend seven actions to ten actions to move it up one space per character to move it up one space. And then you kill one monster and it moves up that same one space. So it's really weird. I mean, it could take you one of those hours to kill a monster and it moves up that one space. And the other thing, which I don't know if you're going to touch on or not, that's frustrating about it is you don't necessarily know what your goals are for the mission. And maybe it's more so in the app, which I've had more experience with lately than playing the actual physical board game. But it's like, okay, do these five things. And I'm like, all right, so I have this much time to do these five things. But then I do it and it's like, oh, and by the way, you got to do this too. It's like, oh, now I have one turn to do this thing. And so while it's kind of cool that like you don't know what's going on, it's certainly going to lead to some losses where it's like, okay, I thought I had a certain amount of time to do whatever the mission objective is, but you never really know what the actual mission objective is until you finish one part of the mission, then they'll give you the next part, then the next part. And that's good in some ways, but in other ways it can be frustrating when you think, okay, I finally finished everything, I won the mission, and oh no, I got three more things to do. So in two ways that narrator track is both good and bad, because the other thing that happens as the narrator track goes up is there'll be certain key points and it's lettered A through N, whatever it is, but maybe letter G, an event happens. And so once you push the track up to G, something will happen in the middle. So I think it's kind of cool how they can infuse some story based on the amount of quote unquote time that's passed, because it's not really time that's passed, because Killing Monsters moves it too. So I, I don't know exactly what it's supposed to be, but yeah, we'll call it time that's passed at this point. And I like what they do there as far as being able to introduce narrative over a certain amount of time, but I'm certainly frustrated as a lot of people are with the kill a monster, move the time track. Yes, my number one is not exactly that, but it certainly plays into it. Really, it's kind of a little bit of cribbing from your number four, three, and one. And that's just the general puzzle of the game and the tactics of the game and the character cooperation in the game. And this is actually a big pro for me. So I love, and, and this, by the way, is a thing that makes up for, or at least partially makes up for all the negativity I've had for the last several points. I find the puzzle really, really interesting. At first, I was a little put off by the monster killing thing, like you were saying, Peter, but now I've come to love it because it is such an excruciating choice and really like a thing you have to plan out for the entire mission. Which monsters specifically can I kill? Because uh, the thing is the monsters move at the end of the turn and if they're trying to move into the same spot, they're going to push each other further along. 
So you're not only you're not only figuring out which monsters you can afford to kill in terms of the narrator's movement, you're also figuring out exactly where to strategically strike monsters so that the overall movement of the monsters is not accelerated to a point where you can't handle it. So I really like that. On top of that, I think that the puzzle is great for characters interacting. And this is where I do like the scenario design. I think the scenarios generally have a lot of different things for characters to do spread out around the map. Like one character might be uh, collecting the rune stone to make your combat stronger. Another character might be focusing on fighting enemies and spending money to up their strength. Another character might be going to get some herbs from some forest thing that'll help you out. Now, you know, whether you're playing solo and just kind of tackling that puzzle on yourself or playing with multiple players and each of you having your role, it all feels really cool and I think it forces you to think uh, about how each player can most be used to their best effect. And like Peter said, you sometimes want to fight together, but you might be like way across the board and that might be really challenging to make happen. So I find the puzzle of this game really engrossing. It's interesting that I'll often lose a mission, and this is kind of the frustrating thing Peter mentioned, where, like, you don't know what's coming. So I'll often lose a mission on the first time playing, but I have no problem. I've done this many times with this series. I have no problem playing a mission, like, two or three times, now that I know what the puzzle is, to, like, figure out the exact way to get through that puzzle. Now, some gamers aren't going to like that, but just as a personal thing, I really do. And one final thing I'll note, (laughs) it's a small thing, but I love the hawk item, You get this hawk, and you can send him off to take an item to another character. And, man, it opens up so many, like, fun, strategic, cooperative elements you can do with these missions where, like, items are involved. If you can just get a hawk to the guy and then have them send something back to you, like, right back to the castle to win the scenario really quickly. So the puzzle's great. It might not work for everybody because it is so challenging and so punishing and might require repeated plays of a scenario. But I I really love it. It's definitely the best thing about the game for me. It's funny you say you like the hawk. I don't know that I've ever bought it. Maybe once or twice to like move runes around, but I don't know that I've bought it more than once or twice when I played. The uh the the item that I love is the helmet, which allows you to basically get the same power as the enemy for any doubles, triples, quadruples, whatever you roll, you get to add them all together. Oh, that is so fun. That is like the first item I buy every time. No, the helmet is great, and especially we didn't really talk about character powers, but that's sort of an honorable mention for me. The, uh, the wizard character only rolls one die, so the helmet's useless to him or her. But if they're in a group combat, they can allow another character to flip a die to the opposite value, which, when you have the helmet, makes it much more likely that you can get the exact result you need for the helmet to get that doubled or tripled attack. So yeah, there, there's some fun combos in the game that neither of us touched on, especially with the character powers. For the little amount of items they have in the game, they're really neat, the variety they add to the game with them, and so I think they do a really good job of that, and I mean, this is getting into my final thoughts, so I'll I'll just keep going. I like the game, I don't love the game, and in fact, in board game form, I was done with the game, but I will say the app has revitalized the game for me, because I think it addresses a lot of Mike's concerns as well. When you said scenario variety, well, the app has 12 missions. And, I mean, you're talking about a $5 app here. The rules aren't an issue anymore. And, in fact, I feel like I could probably play the board game better now that I played the app more because even though, as we know, anytime there's a digital implementation of anything, they're going to handle the rules for you. But they do a good enough job of introducing things slower in the app than they do in the board game. I think they only wanted to do, like, a few scenarios in the base game where 
in the app, they have 12 missions to spread things out across. And so they don't introduce things quite as quickly. And so I think it does a good job of actually teaching you the game. And I see some things in the app, which I didn't remember from playing the board game. And the other thing you were talking about earlier, which is combat, which, yes, the numbers can get pretty high sometimes. Well, it does all that adding up stuff for you. And you can even look at starting a combat and going, wait, their combat strength is 10 minus 6. I probably don't want to start this combat. So, I mean, there are a lot of things I think the app does really well. And so if I'm going to play this game now, that's how I'd prefer to play it. Now, the problem with the app, of course, is there's no online play. So... I mean, you're basically playing it as a solo experience if you're playing on the app. So there are some cons to the app in that, and certainly the board game handles that better. But even as a way to figure out if you're going to like the game and figure out if you want to introduce it to your friends and teaching you the rules so it's way easier to teach your friends, I think the app does a lot of things well toward that. So the app is a big recommend for me. The board game itself, well, play the app first, see if you like it. Yeah, and I'll echo Peter's compliments of the app. I haven't played it quite as much as him, but I think it's a really slick implementation. I already like the game mechanics a lot, and it does have nice variety. It does have some challenging puzzles, so it's really fun. You can even play on hard mode, which is what I've been doing with all the scenarios, which is probably why I'm not as far along as you are. But that really like ups the, uh, the stakes of the puzzle and makes it even tougher. As for Legends of Andor, the board game, it's a little tough to recommend this one to the average gamer. I really enjoy it, despite all the negatives I had, because... So, here's the thing. I have all the expansions, except for the latest one, which is, like, another uh, hero expansion. But I have uh, the Extra Characters expansion, I have the Star Shield, I have the Journey to the North. Um, All of those require the original game. And then I also have the new standalone game, uh, Dark Hope. The base game is not the best. Like, in fact, I would say the base game is the worst of all of, like, kind of the core experiences that I just talked about. I think it has the least variety. I think it has the, like, least interesting puzzles. I just don't think it's that great. But the tough thing is that the Star Shield, which is, I think, the best expansion, because it basically takes the base game and adds tons of variety and really different scenarios and really, really fun, cool cardboard pieces at a super cheap price point, you need the base game to play that. So I would say if you are if you like the app and want to buy the game, buy the core game and Star Shield at the same time, and I think you'll enjoy it a lot more. At the same time, I think the Journeys to the North is a great expansion, like much more interesting than the base game, but requires the base game to play it. And that's a full, that's basically buying the game again. That's a pretty full price uh, product right there. So that's a lot of money to drop for that kind of thing. I'm not going to go into Last Hope too much because I am reviewing it later, but so far it's also definitely better than the base game. And it is a standalone product, so you might think, hey, that's what I would tell you to buy, but it's also so much harder than any of the other releases. It's clearly expecting you to be kind of an Andor expert to actually win it. So uh, I don't really know what to tell you to buy. I'm not sure if you should buy anything um, (laughs) because this is a troubled system. So real quick, if you love solo play... And you're not, you don't have a problem looking up some rules online, just checking that you're playing correctly. And you're interested in at least going in for Star Shield as an additional purchase and not just buying the base game by itself. I think Legends of Andor could be really good for you. But if if, uh, finding those rules clarifications is going to frustrate you to no end, if you think you're only going to play with four players, which I don't think is the best way. I think this is a really good like one, two, maybe three player game. 
then I think you might want to stay away. But in any case, check out the app. It's very cheap. You can see how the system works. You'll get a better feel for whether you want to buy the rest. But yeah, it's tough to recommend this fully. It's it's definitely an iffy game, even for me. And again, I buy everything, but I realize a lot of people are not going to enjoy it as much as I do. Well, yeah, and you mostly play it solo. So I do think solo players will like it more than people playing it cooperatively. And that leads me back to the app again. You know, the app is a great way of playing it and learning it for people who want to play it solo as well. All right, so that's it for Legends of Andor, but let's go right into our design discussion, which is on theme versus mechanics and how they clash or how they might complement one another. (laughs) I think we pretty much had this as our design discussion because of Peter's final point. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are, I would say, mechanically frustrated that the game, or sorry, thematically frustrated that the game forces you to move that narrator every time you kill a monster. And the game doesn't really explain it at all. Like, I don't remember ever seeing any flavor text that's like, here's why killing the monsters is making you run out of time. It's just like in a fantasy game, like in a setting where you would think you want to fight these monsters and save the castle, the game's like, no, no, no. Mechanically, you will lose. Figure out something else to do. But, like, makes no attempt to figure out with theme. So I think that's kind of where this design discussion came from in the first place. Absolutely. And this design discussion can go in a hundred different ways. I mean, there is the, if you're going to make a Euro game, why put a fantasy theme on it discussion? Because now you're attracting an audience that won't nec- that will be more likely to complain about things that break thematic narrative. But where do you draw the line as well? You know, so one thing that thematic versus the streamlined mechanics comes in, and, and that was our main goal. I mean, our purpose of setting up MVP board games when we started was to make thematic games that had streamlined rules. But there are times when those two things come in conflict with each other. So if you want a streamlined rule and Euro balance two games, the problem is sometimes that's really boring because if action A and action B are exactly balanced to each other, well, then it doesn't matter what you choose, especially in a cooperative setting. It doesn't matter if you choose A or B. So there is no best choice to make, and that can be frustrating. And so that's why sometimes in thematic games, they'll make action A way better than action B. And then sometimes action B will be way better than action A. And so I think there are ways to make games thematic while still having streamlined mechanics in them. Yeah, totally agree. Now, I did want to talk about one of my pet peeves with theme. And I think Andor... Andor doesn't really fall into this uh, trap except for that narrator movement when you kill enemies mechanic. But I hate... (laughs) This goes to what you said, Peter, about, like, why do you put a fantasy theme on a Euro game? I hate when a game takes the time to really sell their theme and, like, pays for amazing art for their theme. And then the game has none of that theme and the mechanics have none of that theme integrated into them. I would much rather you like let the game be dry (laughs) and not trick me with the theme than sort of do a bait and switch. Like, you know, if you know that your game is an incredibly dry mechanical game, just do like everybody else and set it like in European trading or something and and I'll be happier with you. The most recent example of this, uh, one that I'm going to review really soon, and you might have already seen the playthrough on YouTube of, is Helionox, which is a deck builder. And 
It's got this really cool backstory about trying to save the universe from these catastrophes. And it's got these event cards that for each planet that have like unique uh, thematic text on them and unique thematic names. And you look at the events and they're all basically the exact same card. So it's like, oh, so the spice riots on Mars have the exact same effect as a civil war on Earth. Well, great and like the game actively like just tells you hey you know all that theme it doesn't matter these cards are all the same and it uh it just seems like sort of lazy use of the theme you know i get it that people will buy games for the art so sometimes you want a theme that will lend itself to evocative art and then they might forgive you kind of the lack of mechanical buy-in but something i'm going to talk about a little bit later is the golden you know kind of Apple, the, the the thing that you most want is when you can have cool mechanics, but they match the theme. And I'm very frustrated. You know, I like other things about Helionox. It is not saying my review will be terrible, but I'm very frustrated by games that pretend to have a theme and don't at all. So I would definitely advise you against that. Especially be very careful pasting on a sci-fi or fantasy theme to a very dry mechanical game. Because those are ones that gamers tend to have the most visceral kind of emotional reactions to and, like, the biggest expectations for. So, you know, do that at your own peril because you're probably going to shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah, and part of it also is you're setting expectations with your theme. And, I mean, I think that's part of the problem that Hyperborea had. It was a very good mechanical game. But they have these cool plastic minis on the board, and it looks like an area control game. And then you play it, and it's a cool bag-building game. And, and, I mean, they even do a really good job of implementing the themes and the actions in the game. So I actually do think they do a good job of meshing that theme versus mechanics. But at the same time, there's certain expectations when you see a bunch of guys on a board as far as, like, killing off other guys and what you're going to do with that and what that means in the terms of the game. And what type of gamer will like that as well? And because of that, I think sometimes you can even turn off people who would love your game because you're attracting the wrong audience with your theme. Now, really good point there. A way that I do think mechanically focused, potentially Euro-ish kind of dry games can make sure that they do use their theme a bit is when a game takes the time, and this is especially true of, like, card-based games where you have a wide variety of, like, quick, bite-sized, thematic notes on each of these cards. I think if you just take the time to make a slight thematic connection that can be found between the cards and the mechanics, that could be enough so that gamers who want to can dig into it and feel that there's theme there and tell little stories about what they're doing. But people who don't mind the game just being a mechanical exercise can enjoy that too. A couple things that kind of come to mind with this. I just recently started playing this game. It's a re-implementation of, I think it's called The Lost Expedition, but it's the uh, Judge Dread, The Cursed Earth card game. And you can totally play that game with just the iconography and never worry about the theme at all. But whenever I try looking at a card and seeing why are these icons on there, it totally makes sense. So in kind of a dark example, there's a card where you find a dog and um, you can either give the dog food, like it's food and you get to move. And it's like, oh, I gave the dog food and he showed me a little shortcut through this place. Or it says uh, fight 
and gain food. And I'm like, oh, I'm killing the dog and eating it. So, you know, like, I appreciate when games take just that little extra step to, even though it's still a fairly, you know, dry mechanical game, they, like, figure out a way to make it work. Another one that, for my opinion, does this, even though I think some people might disagree, I always found Race for the Galaxy, like the base Race for the Galaxy, to have a decent amount of theme in the cards. Like, I would read what kind of world it was, and I would see what the effect was, and I'd be like, yeah, okay, I get that. The casino gives me money. Uh, This place gets me a lot of culture. You know, like, it it always made sense to me when I wanted to look for it. So if you're going to do a more Euro-focused game, but you want to at least, like, pretend that there's a theme there, take the time, especially when you have a card-based game, to just inject little bites of theme, even without any flavor text, just in how the mechanics fit into the, like, illustration or name of that card. Try to inject those things, and you'll make at least gamers like me a lot happier. Want a little shout out to Jason from Every Night is Game Night. Go listen to his podcast if you're not, especially if you're a solo gamer. He did send you that Judge Dredd game. Yeah, I totally meant to give a shout out. Yeah, Jason's amazing. He just sent me that game. He's like, hey, I'm done with this. If you want to give it some coverage too, go ahead. So yes, uh, thank you, Jason. You're amazing. Go listen to Every Night is Game Night. They're great. So what is the main debate between theme and mechanics? And again, we're not talking about which one should you do. We're talking about making a thematic game and... What is the choices you have to make in the mechanics? And the real thing comes down to there are going to be certain times in the game where you have to lean toward making something either more realistic or more streamlined. And I think the more times you go toward that streamlined approach, the less thematic the game is going to feel overall. There are reasons that some of these quote-unquote Ameritrash games take six hours to play and they have all these rules lookup tables and stuff like that. The more you try to emulate real life, the more times you're going to have to make special exceptions to your rules. And the more exceptions you have to the rules, the more times people are going to have to look things up or whatever else. Or if you want to add more story to your game, you're going to have to have more thematic flavor text to your game. And that's going to potentially pull people away as well and add time to the gameplay length. So when you're making these decisions, sometimes it's like, okay, what do we want here? The thing that's going to play smoothly or the thing that would actually make this feel more like you're in this specific setting and so is it the feeling you're going for or is it the streamlined gameplay you're going for and hopefully you can make both of them work but a lot of times they are actually pulling in opposite directions from each other so that's why you're going to have to make those decisions and again the more times you go towards streamlining just realize your game's going to feel more mechanical and more euroy as well then the more times you go toward these exceptions you're going to be able to create cool story moments. And that's, I think, one of Eric Lang's big thing is he wants to make story moments where people remember what's going on and you add these cool things in the game that totally break every rule that you were used to. And it feels cool, but at the same time, it can sometimes be a mechanical mess to play. Yeah, a lot of it comes from the idea of how many toggles you add to your game and how many options are available to you in the mechanics. Because thematic games tend to have more toggles and more options. Let me give you an example for a second. Let's say that you're playing a game, and the only mechanic is that your pawn moves forward or back. So you can draw a card, and it can be from like an event deck of 100 cards, and it can have this amazing like thematic description and great narrative writing, and you could have a really interesting choice at the bottom, like do you help the orphan child, or do you run away from the war zone? But 
if you have an extremely streamlined game and the only difference between those two choices is move pawn forward, move pawn back, you're never going to get a thematic feel no matter how much narrative you write in there because your game does not have enough toggles to actually make that narrative come to life. It's just another way of saying what you were saying, Peter, about like the game being more or less realistic. Whereas if you have like 50 different tokens, you know, like it's a, it's one of the more complicated like fantasy flight games, you've got the poison token, you've got the flame token, and each of them has a card associated with it that does a different effect. And, you know, this one, you roll the die, you might take this much damage, but this one uh, slows your movement down by one. You know, like that's where you get, some people call it chrome, and that can be a derogatory term, like you're adding all these little rules that only come up in certain situations But that's what makes the theme come alive. Like, you feel, when you have the toggles and you have the different effects, you feel like it is different to be poisoned than it is to be sick. You feel like it is different to be trapped than it is to be put in prison. You feel like it's different to fight this monster than it is to fight that monster. You know, like, combat in Andor has very little theme, because except for a higher strength number, nothing is different about it. But if you have a game where, like, this monster fights you in a totally different way, you don't even roll the dice with this monster, and this monster has three different special abilities, and you got to deal with them, and you need a certain item. Like, the chrome, as Peter said, goes directly against the streamlining, but if you want to make theme in a memorable way, you need to have those toggles to, you know, let things feel different. If, if the game is too samey, you can't make the theme be memorable. Well, and I actually think the Andor app does a better job of this. So part of the thing with the base game of Andor is I think there's only like two or three base enemies that you deal with. Maybe it's yeah, four or the, five. Uh, yeah, no, there's, no, there's only three. There's like the Gores, the Scrawls, I think they're called, and Trolls. And they just have higher health, you know, higher stamina or sorry, higher strength, higher willpower, more dice. And that's it. Oh, I guess there's dogs. There's like a fourth one. Yeah, but what the app does is they add flying gores in one of the scenarios. So the only difference between them is you can't attack them unless you have a bow. Well, that makes you need to get bows for all your characters. So it adds a little bit of theme there, and it makes you do something different. And that's what I love about scenario-based games. They make you do things different than you would normally do if they do it correctly. You know, you don't want to give people an option that they're always going to choose anyway. If there's a weaker item, make them use it in two or three missions throughout the game, and that way they get used to using that as well, and maybe people will even see something really cool about that item that they didn't realize before, and maybe they'll choose it for more missions even when it's not required by the mission. So I think that scenarios can go a long way like we've just played Komonots the other day and certainly games that we're designing like spare parts right now our goal is to make the rules very simple base set of rules but you change up based on the mission itself and the mission's going to change things and i think that's one way to add theme to a game even if the base mechanics are very streamlined and simple So scenario-based play, whether it's reading a book passage and that book will have separate rules for that specific mission or the way we're doing it is story cards. So you flip a new card, that'll give you one new rule to learn for that mission or for this one room of the mission. And then you go to the next room and maybe there's another new rule, but you're not piling on 27 rules and none of them need to be remembered throughout the course of the game. You don't need to save that card for when you play 20 missions later, what was that rule again? You don't need to look it up. It's all right there. So 
I think there is a way to mix theme and mechanics very well, but you're going to do it with simple rules that come in for one scenario at a time or one thing that you do. And, you know, what? a lot of what we've talked about is rules burden. You know, you don't want to add two or three exceptions to rules throughout the game. So what do we do to create cool story moments? You have individual moments that happen. Maybe you flip over a card and one thing happens right then and there, and you don't have to look at that card or remember that scenario for the rest of the time. You just have that one cool thing happen, and now you go back to playing the game as usual. So there are definitely ways to do both, but again, you're taking away from streamlining by doing that because now people have to stop learn a new rule for that scenario. And so I still think there's this pull one way toward theme and one way toward streamlining that does separate Euro and Amera games. And I think there is a happy medium, but it's going to be different for each player. Well, yeah, and I think you also sometimes come up against replayability. You know, on the extreme end, something like Detective, where you have a lot of theme on the cards and like a really strong story to be told and you do have things changed up from case to case but you can never play it again after you play it that one time whereas a game like pandemic has zero story <laughs> doesn't even attempt to you know be like yes you can kind of imagine there are diseases on the board and yes the roles kind of make sense so it's not like theme is certainly not very much going on thematically but people can play that game 100 200 times and still enjoy the streamlined mechanics of it, and you can add expansions on to kind of vary up those mechanics. But yeah, no, I, I totally agree that the silver bullet for a lot of games, and clearly we see many games doing this, is to go to like kind of card-based changes that are temporary, uh, scenario-based, or at least minorly scenario-based games. Like I think of Spy Club, where you get a fun little story with each of the cards that you add on for each new game you play, each new session. You get a variance of the core mechanics just for that one session. And, you know, I, I like that kind of thing because it does, as you said, let you keep some streamlined mechanics, but add on just enough variety and theme and story and story that is meaningful, story that actually, like I said earlier, actually affects the mechanics that are happening to you. Um, I, I think it's definitely... Something to keep looking into. Clearly, a lot of game designers are using it, and I think that's the right call if you want the theme to be alive in some meaningful way for your game. No, absolutely. And uh, I'm kind of to the end of my list. I mean, I'm really not. We could talk about this for the next five days, probably, because this is one of the core debates in all of game design is theme versus mechanics. But I'm pretty much spent for what I want to talk about for today anyway. No, me too. I mean, the final thing I'll say is that even Peter and I, I think, are somewhat different in this. I definitely start with theme in the majority of my, like, design work and then, like, sort of figure out mechanics, even if they aren't that clever. And Peter, I think you're a lot better at coming up with kind of unique mechanics, and then maybe we'll figure out the, <laughs> the theme later and just kind of uh, find something that sort of fits that mechanic. So, you know, I think we have a good compliment between the two of us there. And that sometimes explains why we're always in the fantasy and sci-fi universe, I think. It's very easy to explain things away between magic and technology. There, there's <laughs> always a way to find, to explain why mechanics work. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us again. I will say that we are doing a lot of design work right now. And we have actually, we've been doing this for probably a little over a year and a half now. And we've never taken a week off. And we're not going to, so don't. Don't panic here. 
But we do we are doing a lot of design work right now, getting ready for Unpub. By the time you hear this, Unpub will have just finished up for us this year. And so we're going to do a little bit of a different episode for you guys in two weeks. So look forward to hearing something a little bit different from us. Yeah, and hopefully uh, spare parts are... You know, we have several designs we're showing at Unpub, but hopefully spare parts will be well-received. We've been <laughs> working every night, hours and hours, on that game to get the big campaign finished. So knock on wood for us. Yeah, I will say if you're in design for money then uh, you're definitely in the wrong place because we've put <laughs> so many hundreds of hours into many of our games and, you know, the the amount you get out of it is very little. I mean, I guess podcasting is the same way. We're not really getting money out of this either, but... <laughs> yes, <no. laughs> a lot of labors of love here. So thank you all for spending your time, and even if you're not getting any money, <laughs> from listening and watching the YouTube channel and just spending your time with us we deeply appreciate it. Well, that is what we get out of it. I mean, in all honesty, you know, there are lots of things in your life you do to get ahead. This is not something we're doing to get ahead. This is something we're doing because we love it. And we definitely wouldn't have continued to do it without the amount of support we've gotten and without the amount of new people we've met. And just it, it's a really cool experience doing this for us. And I mean, it's really you guys out there listening that make it all worthwhile. All right, have a great week, everybody, and we'll see you at the next stop. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Co-OpCast, your one-stop for cooperative game news and reviews. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, check out Colin on his YouTube channel, One Stop Co-op Shop, and follow us on Facebook at One Stop Co-OpCast. Finally, join our Slack group by emailing us at MVP Board Games for continued discussion on these topics throughout the week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Cool. Well, thanks for the overview, Mike. And if it's your first time joining us, we usually talk about... We don't usually. We always talk about it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, this is... Hey, Mike. Yeah. I was thinking about coming over to your house and killing you, but I don't have a day to spare. <laughs> That's by far the creepiest one of your final messages you've ever done. Don't kill me, dude. My children need me. I would never kill you, Mike. Thanks. Because <laughs> I don't have a day to spare. Okay. <laughs> Sticking to your guns there.